1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal or financial product advice.
2: Hello and welcome to My Millennial Money with John Pidgeon and also Dev Raga from My Millennial Money Medical. It's a takeover session and you may have heard a few of these in the last couple of weeks. So we're taking you over today and there's a heap of unreal questions that Dev and I are going to answer for you. Before we jump in, we cannot do this podcast without TAL. T-A-L, tell. If something goes wrong with your health, TEL's job is to make things simpler for you in any way that they can, like covering your kids' education, keeping up your mortgage repayments, or rehab to get you back on track sooner. Search TAL online or speak to your financial advisor today about how TEL can help you and your family. If you need an advisor, you can head over to sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Righto, Dev, let's get started. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned, plenty of questions here today for us, Dev. They've all put them in the Facebook group, which is awesome. So um, yeah, if you want to put a question in at any stage, just um, fire away and one of us will get back to you as best we can. Can't answer everyone, but we'll do our very best. So Dev, what's the first one for us today?
3: This is a question from Kelly Christie, who asks, tips for using equity to buy another property or ETFs?
2: There we go. So do you want to give your two cents worth before I um, come over the top with uh, with property? Let, let's, um, I suppose, f- from your point of view, talk about e- e- uh, ETFs in your world. Uh, you do a lot more of that than I do. Um, and, and then I'll come and talk about property.
3: Yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the stock market. Uh, I've been investing in the stock market for a number of years. Uh, this is my 12th year of investing. I do have some investment properties but I've sort of fallen more in love with the stock market than I have over property. I read this question John uh two ways. One is they wanted to, you know, uh th- they wanted to know what to do with their equity, whether they take the money and then put it into another investment property or take the money and put it into the stock market in the way of ETFs. But maybe um uh, I'll sort of throw this one back to you. So for everyone listening just for basics what is equity? When people say accessing equity in their property, uh, maybe just from your from your understanding, maybe explain it to the listeners what that is and I'll do the rest.
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, for those who are listening for the first time, thank you. Uh, I co-host My Millennial Property and also a co-host of the Tuesday show. So property is my, I suppose, background and domain. That's majority of what I've been investing in for the, the last 20 um, odd years, a little bit more now. Um, so Equity is generally uh, extracted from Someone's property, whether that be an owner-occupier home, someone something that you live in, or an investment property. So let's use an example of an owner-occupier home because that's probably the most common place in which we would uh, extract equity from. Equity is basically the difference between the value and the debt of the property, right? So let's do a high-level number. Uh, we've got a property worth five hundred thousand, and uh, we've we've got a debt of say three hundred thousand. Okay. So, banks will lend, generally speaking, up to 80% of something's value minus its debt in in the case of residential property. If it's commercial, very different story. Um, But but generally, if resi, you will be able to lend up to 80% of its value, provided you've got the servicing required, that is the ability to to fund that with income.
3: So, using that example, sorry, John, uh, to interrupt, does that mean out of half a meal, you can borrow up to $400,000. Four hundred thousand, and if you've got a debt of three hundred thousand, you can borrow another hundred thousand. That's eighty percent of the value. Yeah,
2: yeah, correct. So when we talk uh, usable equity, which is a different um, formula, we're saying right. 80, uh 500,000 times by 80% is 400, as you mentioned, minus our debt is 100,000. So there's 100,000 of usable equity there. The whole equity in the property is actually 200,000, but the banks won't lend that all 200 to you because there's too much risk uh, to them when we're Basically, borrowing everything that uh, that the property is worth. Okay, so let's use that example if you want, and and, and say, well, okay, we've got a hundred thousand that we've extracted. Now we do draw that down as a loan. There's a lot of people that uh, have this misconception that, okay, I'm taking that hundred thousand and I'm not paying interest on that. You you absolutely are. As soon as you draw it down, you, you might have it sitting there and not draw it down. In which case, you you may not pay interest on in it, or you won't. Uh, but as soon as you start using that money for some way, shape or form, and we'll talk about property and, and ETFs, but uh, you'll start paying interest on that uh, money, whatever the, the bank has lent you that money at.
3: Yeah. So so Kelly, if you're listening, supposing you've got $100,000 to invest and your question is, are you going to put that towards another property or are you going to invest into ETFs, which is essentially the stock market? Um and, and this is fundamentally, you're asking what's the pros and cons of each approach or so which one is better? And of course, it's hard to answer a question via Facebook, but I'm a big fan of the stock market. So, what I would, you know, if it was me, uh, I would take the $100,000 and I would put it into a broad based ETF. And when I say broad based ETF, um, I think about what I invest in. Uh, index funds is basically what I use in an everyday fashion. So, let me give you a real life example. I get up in the morning, I have a shower, brush your teeth, um, have some breakfast. When I do those things, I'm using businesses that are producing those goods and services. So, what sort of businesses? Utility companies, um, shopping centre companies. So, if I'm buying breakfast cereals from Coles or Woolies, you know, I've got Coles and Woolies as part of the index funds. I drive a car you know that's made of you know uh you know metal which is you know mined and i go to the office and i use computers and technology and that's all part of the businesses uh, that produce those goods and services so then you got to figure out okay what is the ETF that you want to invest in um you can invest in everything which is a broad based ETF or you can just invest in an ETF that tracks a real estate fund for example um if that's what you're Uh, interested in. And that's kind of like buying property, except you're not buying that individual property. You're just buying a bit of everything in a fund and they kind of own assets, uh, which include property as well. And I guess the reason why I like ETFs or the stock market is diversification is a lot easier um, as opposed to buying uh, individual homes, uh, you know, uh, where you want to buy. Um, and generally speaking, to actually access and the liquidity and, and the fact that you can buy, you know, little bits at a time, uh, it's a lot easier in the stock market than it is in the property market. You're probably not going to get another house in a city of, you know, Melbourne or Sydney for a hundred thousand dollars, so you're going to have to borrow some more money. Um, so, uh, but over the long term, John, I think, you know, property has done reasonably well in Australia compared to the stock market. So, you know, hopefully that answers Kelly's question. You know, for me personally, it's much easier to access the stock market uh, and I would much prefer that. But I'll be interested to hear your viewpoint, John. Yeah,
2: it's it's almost a a shakedown between um, ETFs (laughs) and property, isn't it? And and I, I suppose Kelly's asking for some tips more so than which one to use and pros and cons. So what what would be maybe uh, two or three tips to consider when spending a hundred grand in into ETFs?
3: So look, it's basically mind over matter. Statistically, if you put a hundred grand into an ETF over the very long term and it's broad based, um, I mean, I'm talking long term, not just 10, 20 years, I'm talking, you know, 30, 40 years time. I don't really have Kelly's age at the moment. The chances are you're probably going to do better over the long term with a lump sum strategy compared to someone who splits the $100,000 into, let's say, over 10 months, put $10,000 each month, and that's called dollar cost averaging. But emotionally, it just makes people feel better not to put the entire amount. So personally, even now, um, you know, even though statistically putting the lump sum is better, if it was me, I'd probably split it up into probably two or three um, you know parcels and invest it that way. Um, but that all depends on what Kelly's preference is and how comfortable she is about taking that risk.
2: Yeah. Okay. So that's a good one. So understanding the risk profile of the individual and saying, do you want to put hundred grand straight into it? Let's go and, and get it all sorted and invested. Or do you want to drip feed it over a number of months, um, 10K at a time as in, in your example. So, so that's the first thing. W- what about uh, holding the, the cost of that loan while we're investing in that ETF? Is that something that you, you need to consider? So for example, like if um, if you put 100K into your ETFs um, and you're borrowing that money from your your equity from your home or the value of the home, um, you might pay, I don't know, let's say 3% interest rate. So you've got some holding costs associated with that. How do we mitigate that against the income from your ETF investing?
3: So, you know, if, if you're investing in an ETF that's producing dividends, um, you know, you can sort of take the dividend income and then offset offset that income against whatever interest repayments uh, that you have to pay against this extra $100,000 that you borrowed. Not to mention, though, the $100,000 that you borrowed is now you know, tax deductible because basically the tax law says that if you take money um, from your home and use it for investing purposes that produces an income, then the costs or the holding costs um, is entirely tax deductible. Not the entire $100,000 instantly, but the interest associated with that $100,000, if you're paying a 5% interest rate, which is $5,000 a year, then that is tax deductible against your assessable income. And whatever dividends that you get, and this is kind of like debt recycling to some extent, is you can then use that dividend to sort of pay off your principal place of residence, which is technically now non-deductible debt.
2: Cool. Okay. That's awesome. So in that example, in in your experience, would you um, talk to someone about the differences between paying principal and interest on that 100K versus interest only, or um, are we concentrating on paying down our, what what I call bad debt on your principal place and and leaving leaving that uh, 100K as, as just an interest only amount?
3: Mathematically, it makes sense to leave it interest only and pay off your non-deductible debt. because the aim here is to maximize your deductible debt and minimize your non-deductible debt. But um, personally, uh, I've all my investments, properties includes, inclusive um, is all principal and interest only. But mathematically, it makes sense to uh, have an interest only in this particular case to pay off that principal.
2: Just for yeah, for cash flow and, and minimizing. Yeah, cool. Okay, that's great. Um, so on to, to property, Kelly. If you're going to use that hundred K for an investment property, I think the first thing we need to take into account is uh, how much are we loaning from the banks to buy that particular property? So again, I'll round it out for for ease of maths. If we're going to buy something for five hundred thousand, uh You would need, if you're going in at say 10% deposit, if you're using that equity as your deposit, that's 50K plus your stamp duty, roughly 20K, legals, costs, et cetera. Let's call it 75 grand that we're using from that 100 for that investment property purchase. Therefore, we're lending another 450. From the bank um, to to top up that 500k purchase. So the the first tip I would have for you, Kelly, would be to understand the cash flow of that property, um, whether we're paying interest only or whether we're going to principal and interest, and what is the running costs of the total property for the year, which would include your insurances, your your council rates, your, your property management, um, your interest on the loan, whether it's principal and interest or just interest only, and see what that um, comes out at long before you go and buy that property. So while you've got your equity sitting there, uh, not drawing down on it, it might be a good exercise or it is a good exercise just to go and look at your overall strategy and, and see, well, what sort of cash flow do I need what price point am I coming in at? And and then you can almost reverse engineer it. Um, so you, yes, your deposit does depend on how much you can uh, buy property at um, and then you can work out well how much do the banks lend me over and above that. But very important with property I see a lot of investors have to sell their property because they're cash flow poor. They've gone in in search for capital growth and what's happened as there might be some vacancies or uh, costs in their life have, have increased and kids, etc. Um, or they've been forced to pay P&I, principal and interest, and they've had to sell that because they haven't gone in with a a high enough yield to begin with. So that would be my first tip and my biggest tip um, for you, Kelly, if you're considering uh, buying an investment property using your equity.
3: Yeah. So do your sums, basically. Really important.
2: Absolutely. uh, Do your sums. Yeah. Okay. Next question. So Felicia and Anastasia Barden, I think it is. hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, Tips for setting yourself up for turning current PPOR, principal place of residence, into an investment property and buying a new family home as your principal place of residence. Um, So, Dev, do you want to have a crack at this one first of all?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, there's plenty of reasons why people might want to do that. You know, they want a larger property, larger land. They want to downsize perhaps. Um, You know, kids have moved out. Uh, they want a better location, school zones, which is massive in uh, massive in Melbourne school zones. And, um, you know, and also the cost of mortgage, you know, might be different. So, there's plenty of reasons why people want to just move out of their current home, make that an investment and then buy another home and make that a principal place of resident. So, uh, pr- probably better if I explain it with an example. So, let's call property one your principal place of residence um, and let's call property two is your investment property. And let's say you've got money sitting in the offset account pointing towards property one um, and, you know, for, for ease of, ease of uh, you know, calculation, let's say it's equilibrium. Let's say, you know, like a, uh, a property uh, debt of about $300,000 and you've got $300,000 sitting in the offset account, which is, um, you know, 100% offset against your principal place. What do you do? Well, you go and hunt for a property. And let's say you want to buy another house that's worth about, you know, $500,000, that requires a 20% deposit, which is $100,000. So, you know, what you can potentially do is take that 100 grand from your current offset account, place it against the deposit of the new property. Now the current offset account now has $200,000, and uh, once you buy the other property, you can take that $200,000 sitting in your Property one offset account, and then possibly set up a property two offset account, and then take the money and transfer it across. Or uh, you can just basically repoint that offset account to the new property. Now, I guess the advantage of that is that um, your principal place of residence, then you've got to tell officially to the ATO that becomes your investment property because you want to rent it out and that earns an income. And then now you move to property number two, which now becomes your principal place of residence, Um, and therefore the two hundred thousand dollars sitting in the offset account after you've paid the deposit, is now pointing towards property two, and everything in property one, the debt in property one, which you haven't really paid off, now becomes tax deductible. And it all depends on how you structure it. So it's really important to structure your loans such that this is actually possible. And that's where, you know, your bank manager and your accountant may come in very handy.
2: Yeah, no, that, that's really good. And it, it sort of stems from the first question, doesn't it, a little bit when we talk about use of equity and and uh, cash funds and principal and interest, interest only, etc. My My biggest, uh, I suppose, tip here would be, ideally, you'd want to know, this plan of attack before you bought that first property, wouldn't you? Because uh, in your your 500K example, you would just keep yourself cash heavy, as you've mentioned, um, Dev, in the offset account and not Muddy the waters of of paid money extra on top of the mortgage um, in it 's in a redraw account, and then I pull that back out and use it for my um, next uh, investment property that turns into a Ppr and and it, and it gets all a bit muddy for the accountant and the ato so yeah, you want to keep it clean as you 've mentioned and and just make sure you have got that offset and you 've got extra monies going into that and not necessarily extra repayments down on the mortgage. If um, if you have that view of turning that into an investment, keep that debt low to then turn that into it, um, provided that you've um – your time frames are in order so if if um, felicia is saying well i'm buying my principal place of residence and then in 10 years time i'm going to turn it into an investment and and buy my new family home well i would i wouldn't mind paying down the mortgage because it's bad debt essentially for 10 years as i've defined it in the first question so i wouldn't mind doing that but if it's only one or two years then you you want to say stay heavy in the offset account. Um, And then you may look at those loan structures and say, well, um, as we mentioned in the first question, uh, we want to pay down that mortgage that's uh, essentially our PPR, principal place of residence. So, let's now maybe go to interest only on the first property and P&I on the second property if we've got cash flow issues. And really it really does depend on time in life, doesn't it? Because it may, when we upgrade our family home, often we're building a family in a lot of cases. So we might already be stretched a little bit cash flow wise. So if you have to pay P&I on both loans, that may stretch things a little bit. So, so understand your cash flow as well.
3: The, the other thing, John, is that, can I just use that same example? Supposing you didn't have an offset account. In fact, one of the doctors that I spoke to made this mistake just probably three or four weeks ago. And they just ploughed money into their into their mortgage. And they thought a redraw was exactly the same as an offset account. And they were hoping that they'll be able to get that redraw money out and then use it to buy their next property. Now, that is it, yes, it's technically possible, but The money that you take back as redraw, that is your own extra repayments that you're accessing, unfortunately now, my understanding it is, and you might want to check with your accountant, is not tax deductible if that property becomes an investment property. It's really critical, as John specifically said, you've got to structure it, have an offset account, think about it, plan it. Now, the other thing also that's really important is you may want to get a valuation of your property one. before you you make it into an investment property because there are capital gains tax um, uh, sort of issues here. So remember that when you own your own home and when you sell it, you don't pay any capital gains tax. But when you have an investment and if you held it for greater than 12 months, you have to pay capital gains tax, albeit you get a 50% discount uh, on whatever is taxable. So if you don't value your property and you move on to the next house, then whatever capital gains is calculated less the time that you've spent in a pro rata time that you spent as a principal place is now calculated from the original purchase price, not from the valuation date. John, does that sort of explain that because um, that's another sort of tricky yeah. thing that people don't realise, to so get a valuation. Uh, absolutely.
2: Yeah, no, a good point. And, and chat to your accountant, as you've mentioned, because you've got that six-year rule, haven't you, where you move out of it. Um, you can still have it technically as your principal place of residence for up to six years before that uh, you start to pay capital gains tax on it, but yeah, talk to your accountant who's um, who's much smarter than me and we'll be able to sort that out for you. Um, the, the, the last thing I want to say on that is we want to be paying cash as our deposit on our principal place. Um, If we were to pull equity out of that property for our principal place of residence, basically we're leveraged at 100%, aren't we, or more because of the stamp duty. So we want to try and get ourselves a 20% cash deposit for our principal place of residence at any time plus your stamp duty. Now, I I get it that a a lot of people just want to get into the market and then they'll cop some lender's mortgage insurance with just 10% or there's a 5% rental guarantor where they don't pay lender's mortgage insurance so I get all of that and there may be some exceptions but generally speaking if you if you are going to upgrade your family home uh, or your principal place of residence just stay cash heavy for that period of time so that you can uh, go in with that that high cash deposit so we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we've obviously got more questions that we would love to, to answer for you guys. But um, as I mentioned at the start, about the Facebook group, if you do have questions uh, for any one of our our shows, just remember to hashtag, uh, hashtag property or hashtag careers or hashtag investing um, so that you can uh, get your your questions answered uh, in the show to the best of our ability, and we can direct that in a, in an efficient manner so let's uh, let's take a break and we'll be back. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss. So we're back. Uh, Dev, this one is right up your alley. Troy Cowan has a question for you. Yeah, question question uh, from Troy is, opinions
3: on investing in property directly or via something like a property-heavy ETF such as VAP, which is basically a Vanguard property uh, index fund, uh, would seem the ETF may not have Uh, only have better returns, but be easier to get into and out of as needed. Uh, And also, there's the ability to invest in smaller chunks without needing to save for a deposit or take out large mortgages and also way less hassle than dealing with tenants. 100%. Now, basically, if you want to invest in property, but you don't actually want to own individual property, then you can definitely invest in things like REITs or um, uh, ETFs that track the property market. And VAP is one of those. I looked at the numbers, basically, it was 12 years old. Um, it's done really well, about 10.9% per annum uh, return with an expense ratio of about 0.23%. That's not too bad. Um, now, it provides instant diversification. Look, I'm completely not against this. The only thing is it's non-tangible. So let me give you a real-life example. Uh, when I drive past my investment properties when I go and do the inspection, when I touch the brick, uh, when I live in my own house, it's tangible. I can touch it. I can feel it. It invokes some emotion. When I log into my Vanguard account, um, it doesn't Give me the same emotional reaction, so um, and I unless guess that's it's one gone the-
2: down or up, <laughs> yeah, that's
3: right. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so it's 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 still not the same. I mean, when it goes down or up, or when it goes up, even uh, yeah, you know, I've got more money than ever before. But it doesn't make me. It's it's not. You know what I mean, John? It's not the same Absolutely. as going and feeling that house. So one of the disadvantages of the stock market or investing in things like VIP is that if you're looking for something tangible, you're not getting that. Um, but the advantage the The flip side is yes, it's easier, lower entry cost, and generally lower cost, and also you don't need to leverage, you don't need to borrow money to invest in these things. Whereas for most people wanting to buy property, you would need to borrow money unless you're very wealthy already. Yeah,
2: yeah, cool, good, uh, good response there. Uh, one thing I would say to Troy, um, I've mentioned at the end there taking out a large mortgage I get is a risk thing. People perceive it as a large risk and and yeah, look, it can be, um, but depending on the cash flow. And then mentioned also way less hassle than dealing with tenants. I'd have to agree with him there, but don't just read the horror stories on that. Um, And you've got property yourself, Dev, and and I deal with a lot of owners uh, across the country. And the percentage of... Of bad tenants and um, annoying tenants and, and uh, tenants that cause us grief, um, a very, very low percentage. So I, I always say a a bad tenant is due to a bad property manager due to a bad landlord making a bad decision. Okay. So you take ownership over that and, and recruit well through property management and uh, oversee that process to select well with low vacancy rates in the area and you're um, percentage of of having a bad tenant will be uh, will be lowered a lot. Won't say it won't happen at all, but uh, yeah, you can only do your best. Hundred percent. So, Kimberly Jade says, "Pay down my mortgage quickly, or save for an investment property."
3: Yeah, that all depends on how secure Kimberly feels with debt. Um, I'll tell you what I did. I paid down my mortgage really quickly. Bought my first home in two thousand nine and uh, it was a very unique circumstance. And in my profession, I'm a doctor. I have plenty of opportunity to work extra, make more money, and, and, and I paid it off within, I think I paid it off within two or three years. Um, and this all depends on your sleep at night factor. I don't particularly like debt. I don't particularly sleep well with personal debt that's non-deductible. And I guess the factors to consider here are the debt size, the interest rate, The income, the dependence, that's really important. So, who are you supporting with your income? And what happens if your income was lost or reduced? Um, And COVID is a classic example. Um, And doctors are not immune to this. In 2020 March, basically, the federal government and the state government said that elective theatre operating will shut down for a period of about three months, which meant a lot of private surgeons and private anaesthetists just basically had zero money coming in in the month of April. So, um, and your job security matters as well, and what your plans are for the future and what other investments you have. So, it's a, lots of things to consider. Um, and also, the advantage of, you know, investing in property is you've got this sort of instant deduction versus depreciation schedules and, and, and deducting costs over a long period of time. So, my answer to that is personally, I paid off my own home before I started investing, um, but it may not be for everyone. And in today's property market unless you got a very high income, um, that would be pretty difficult to do. Uh, And I was just lucky in 2009.
2: Yeah. So three years is a pretty quick timeframe, isn't it? To pay down your mortgage. So so well done on that. Um, I, I think, as you mentioned, the average might take 10 to 12 years mm. uh, at best, I suppose, in a lot of cases. We try to pay it down sooner than the 30 years that the bank asks us, uh, ask us to. But um, yeah, I my response to that, Kimberly, is let's do both. Uh, I came from a different um, side of the tracks, I suppose, from a point of view of building the wealth and, and went down the rent vesting path. So my first five properties were all properties that I rented out. So I didn't have that I suppose, perceived hassle of a large mortgage and will I lose my job, etc. Because my my whole debt in my life was covered by my my tenants and a bit of the tax person. So um, I, I can feel people's pain in in taking out a large mortgage, absolutely. And there's that, as you mentioned, Dev, the sleep at night factor, where does your risk profile sit? So you've got to take that into account. But I look at uh, four pillars to create wealth. Um, First one is pay down your principal place of residence if you've got it. Second one is increase your cash. Third one is uh, increase your assets through super, shares, property, business if you want. And then the fourth one is reduce your tax legally, right? So the fourth one can't happen unless you've got the third one. Um, But too many people, I think, um, personally, focus on paying down their mortgage for the next 15 years while their kids are growing up or, or let's be safe and make sure we've, we're paying off our mortgage, the roof over our head. And when the kids are out of our hair, then I'll focus on investing. Well, in a lot of cases, it's too late then. We, we're hitting 50 and we want to retire by 55 or 60. So we're putting too much pressure on the assets that we're investing in after that. So I'm saying to Kimberly. And it's a bit of a rant, dev, so just hear me out. Um, I'm saying do both right why can't we pay down the mortgage as quick as we want and then draw some money out as equity to go and buy your investment property if that's what you wouldn't to do to increase your assets um, or stay cash heavy in your offset account reduce the interest on your own mortgage and use the cash either's fine. Uh, the, using the equity has better tax benefits, but again, depends on your, your risk profile and, and your long-term wealth plan. If, if you want to build a portfolio worth $5 million or $4 million and your mortgage or your owner-occupier home is, is um, say, a million dollars, you've got a bit of work to do to build that wealth plan. So if you wait 10 years to pay your mortgage down, um, then you, you may be playing a bit of catch-up on your own wealth plan.
3: Yeah, and that basically is two words, opportunity cost. If you waited for 10, 15 years, you've missed out on the ride. Um, So, I guess the question is, would I do things differently now, having been a little bit more astute with my money? uh, I probably would. Um, And I think at the time, my my firstborn was in 2010. So, we bought our house in 2009. So, we were – I was quite nervous about, you know, the baby coming – and you sort of all of a sudden you're a father, and, and and you sort of go, oh my god, I'm sort of responsible for this this little little human being. Mm. But you're right. I think retrospectively and hindsight is twenty twenty. Had I had my time again, I probably would have maybe been a little bit less aggressive, and then maybe utilized the extra cash flow to um, start investing uh, in 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 property. Um, although at the time I did invest in a little bit of shares. But um, yeah, it's it's entirely dependent on your situation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and of course, don't no, forget really to invest
3: cool. in your career and business, right? I mean, you did mention it. I mean, mm-hmm. don't forget to invest in your business or, or career. Um, yeah. I mean, I had to do a lot of training, and and I did spend a lot of money on my career, and I, and I retrospectively now, that's paid fruitful. It's been it's been worth doing that.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, don't worry. I've seen uh, doctors hex debts, and I'm. Um, it's not pretty, is it?
3: <laughs> it's not nice. So the next question we have from Lucy Blackledge. The question is, what's the best place or asset to invest in to start seeing returns in the next 10 years? I know time is the biggest factor for ETFs, um, but having left it a little bit too late in the game, I'm trying to maximise my potential now so that in 10 or 15 years' time, I can start withdrawing some assets. Uh, maybe I'll let you start that one, John.
2: Yeah, so I think, Lucy, this is um, this is a common one uh, when we, I suppose, Not put ourselves down, but we say I've left it a little late in the game. Um, Now, the average person in Australia at the moment lives to about 85, okay? So unless you're sitting here at 70, 72 years, we've still got opportunity, right? (laughs) So I think... And and we play a bit of a part in that pressure, don't we, because we hear all these great stories about 20-something-year-olds doing so much and 30-something-year-olds really taking some action, which is awesome, um, but it can put some perceived pressure on ourselves. So if we're sitting there, Lucy, and we're under 40 or under 50, don't put any pressure on yourself. There's still a good chunk of time to be able to really make a, a difference. So um, now 10 to 15 years time, you've mentioned you want to start withdrawing some assets. So I, I think a long-term wealth plan, if you want to buy some assets, and unless you're speculating with shares of property, different story or development, et cetera, different conversation, but you want to be able to hold uh, any of those good blue chip assets for, for 10 to 15 years anyway to allow them to do their thing in a, in a full cycle. So yeah, that, that 10 to 15 years is a good time frame. For any less than say five years, you're putting too much pressure on it, I believe. Um, so the best place or asset to invest in to start seeing returns in the next 10 years, look, if you look back on property in the last 10 years, it's it's been outstanding, but not for all of those 10 years. It really depends on where you're buying and the type of asset that you buy. Houses have performed better than units in in almost every suburb, if not every suburb in Australia. Um, again, your appetite for risk. So is it uh, how much do you want to leverage your money? Uh, what's your cash flow requirements in your life? What, what do you... Um, what what is it shares a property, usually, Dev, we've got one or the other, haven't we that's our we hang our hat on as we feel more comfortable doing this. So you might choose one of those and really skill yourself up in one of those areas, um, but i would I would start small and not take on too much too soon, just because we're in a hurry. Um, just, just relax and, and make sure we're, we're doing things that fit our risk profile. So that might be just simply, as you mentioned, put some money in, into some ETFs and, and let, let it go for 12 months and see how that goes and drip feed into it over, over the period of time for a few years. Increase your super contributions if you want to there. Um, but really know the major assets that you're going to buy. So if it is your, own home to, to live in. And I, I can't see whether she has this or not. But if you want your own home in the next 10 years, then you need to save a, a good chunk of a, de- a deposit for that. If that's already sorted or you don't want that, then you've got a bit more flexibility. So yeah, probably haven't answered that, um, <laughs> giving you a succinct answer, Lucy, but they're the things that I would factor in before I decided what I did as my first step. But, but generally speaking, start small. What about you, Dev?
3: yeah some good points uh, look I- I'm assuming that um, you know uh, uh, Kimberly oh sorry not Kimberly Lucy has um, you know got her emergency fund sorted, has no consumer debt and you know has has sort of minimal minimal debt because um, if you've got no emergency funds and you've got consumer debt, well that's what you need to put your money into and get get that emergency fund sorted and also get rid of that consumer debt um, never ever is consumer debt a good thing. Don't anyone say that's a good thing. It's never. It's a 100% rule is don't ever get consumer debt. Now, let's assume that Lucy, for the purposes of this question, is 50 years old, which means in 15 years' time, she may be approaching retirement. So the question is what should she do with her you know, money in the next sort of 10 to 15 years? Now, I would be very, very, uh, you know, pro-superannuation um, because the tax effectiveness of superannuation during your retirement phase is phenomenal. So if Lucy isn't maximising her super and she's 50 years old and she wants to do something over the next 10 or 15 years and she's got some income and she's got no consumer debt, then at least maximise your super. Now, the next thing is if you want less Um, hands on experience with your investments, then you go look at things like index funds or ETFs. Um, and I'm a great fan of ETFs, broad based ETFs, not your, I'm not a great fan of thematic or those sort of niche ETFs and lithium stocks and all that sort of stuff. You know, if you want something broad and you want less hands-on, then pick a broad-based, you know, perhaps a world ETF or something that has a little bit of everything in it, just like when you go to Coles and you buy everything on the shelf that you want to eat. You got a bit of bread, a bit of meat, a bit of pasta, a bit of yogurt. It's exactly the same principle in investing. But make sure you look at the fees. Um, if you're approaching that sort of 45, 50 years of age, make sure you log into your super, look at the fees. And uh, there's, there's, there's plenty of evidence that fees can potentially kill your investment. And, um, and, and yeah, I mean, John, I sort of had a different answer to you and that is superannuation. Um, now, the other thing, that John, that you mentioned very eloquently and I think it's a really important highlight point is that this notion that when you reach age 65, you stop investing, um, you know, is, may, may not be entirely accurate. So, you know, remember that when you reach age 65 and you start withdrawing money from your assets, either via dividends or by selling off some of the capital, your existing investments are potentially still growing. They're still invested in the market. So if Lucy is 50 years of age and the average age is, you know, 85, then potentially the investing runway... One could argue is at least 20, if not 30 years ahead of her. So when I talk to a 40 year olds that say it's a bit too late for me, what do I do? I say, well, not really, because you've potentially got another 30, 40 years of investing runway. So you've still got time. And of course, you know, if you're, you know, 25, yeah, it's great to start investing then. But, uh, you know, when's the best time of investing? Yesterday. The next best time is today because. You know, if if Lucy is fifty, then still got about thirty years left over. So plenty of time.
2: Absolutely, yeah. No, that's that's a good point. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely pro uh, superannuation when you're approaching retirement. I suppose the unknown at the minute for us is um, just how old Lucy is because of your retirement uh, regulations in relation to to um tax and everything else. So, yeah, um, but great question is, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's such a common one though. I don't know about you, Dev, but I, I, I get a lot of people um, ringing me trying to or being too hard on themselves. It's like, well, I'm, 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 have I started too late? Is it, um, am I ever going to be able to do what I want to do? I'm playing catch up and, and like some of them are only like 35, 40 years of age. Mm. Mm. You're up, right. plenty of time. Okay. So uh, time for one or two more. We've got one from Kat Dundon. I want to know the pros investing in an apartment, unit, strata, title, property. I know all the cons, but I don't want to be close-minded should the right property opportunity present itself. Uh, Dev, have you had any experience personally in these type of um, asset class?
3: Yeah, I do. I, I do have uh, 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 an apartment as an investment um, in, in Melbourne. Uh, it's, it's a very, very good question because when people talk about apartments or strata titled property, 100% of the time, they always say, don't buy it. It's negative. It's, it's bad. If you don't own land, you're just wasting money. And to be honest, I kind of used to think like that as well. Um, and, and I can see the negatives of that, about it. But generally speaking, it's cheaper to buy a strata titled property um, so, your, you know, cheaper land cost, I guess, per unit. And generally speaking, if you buy something for cheaper, uh, your rental yield is a little bit better. So, to give you an example, to buy an apartment in Melbourne City might be, you know, $300,000 to buy something in uh, an independent home in Melbourne is at least six hundred, if not eight hundred thousand dollars, and the rent that you are going to get for an eight hundred thousand dollar home is possibly not going to be that much more than what you are going to get for a three hundred thousand dollar apartment uh, in the city. So your rental yield is going to be a little bit, little bit better on a uh, cost basis. Now, there is some other sort of interesting sort of benefits. Um, I think so. For example, the apartment that I have has amenities within the apartment building, so it's got a gym, it's got a swimming pool. Um, And it's got a tennis court. So, it's an indoor tennis court. So, those are all sort of potential advantages if you're looking for somewhere to live or even invest because that means you can start charging more rent because it's got some additional sort of services associated with that. Usually, building insurance. Uh, now, I still have building insurance for my apartment, but usually, any sort of repairs that are involving the building is covered by the body corporate fees that you pay. So that's got built in insurance in it, and you have a property manager if you if if you're investing in a apartment building. And generally speaking, although COVID has probably, you know, disrupted this a little bit, but generally speaking, uh, apartments are easily rentable, particularly in areas like in Melbourne and Sydney, where there's plenty of international traffic. And and I believe, John, end of Feb, we are opening up borders for tourists, which means international students will be coming. Now, interestingly, my my, um, independent homes uh, that I have during COVID had to have rental reductions. Um, whereas my apartment never required that. I always had it rented out, even during the depths of COVID, even during the market you know calamity. So uh, the learning point for me was that um, if you're investing in something and you're looking for cash flow, then these are all the positive things about an apartment. Um, but of course, you know you got to you got to um, make sure you do your own analysis. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, no, good, uh, good assessment there for sure, Dev. Um, obviously, Cat knows the the cons, so we won't go down that um, big rabbit hole. But I, I suppose the the other one to mention was um, if, if you're living in it. Uh, or investing. Uh, the, the person living in it is essentially got access to everything usually at their doorstep, haven't they? So walk to train line if it's um, close by, you walk to shops and, and may not even need a car. So this uh, fast-paced life that a lot of people want to live now, uh, an, an apartment or a unit uh, might be suitable for you because you've got that. Now, if a tenant uh, feels the same way, then that that's a great outcome for them and as you said there'll be um there'll be the demand for that um so yeah i think that's the, that's the main attraction is if i'm going to spend 600k Uh, I can go and buy maybe two-bedroom apartment in the city, or if I want a house with some land, I may need to go 20, 30K out of the CBD. So if we're talking regional, generally speaking, we don't have too many uh, high-rise apartments in regional centres. It's more the the single-level unit blocks of eight or 10 or four. Um, And if it's... um, uh, understanding, I suppose, the difference in a regional centre versus a city centre if we're buying uh, an apartment or a unit as, as an investment uh, opportunity.
3: Now, next question. We've got Henry Slater-Jones. How would you determine if a long-term money goal, example, 10-year goal, is achievable or unrealistic? I'll let you take that one
2: first. Henry. So Henry apparently... Not apparently, he was. He was at our Brisbane show, the very young oh, and right. up-and-comer. Up so uh, okay. thanks for reaching out, Henry. Um, he is a go-getter. So Henry, uh, I suppose a 10-year goal, a long-term money goal, I I just use some simple maths and I'm going to do a live calculation. Hopefully my maths served me well with this calculator, Dev. But let's pick a figure for Henry to say, well, how much do I need in 10 years' time? right? so let's say the figure is, I don't know, 100,000. Right, so first of all, I divide 100 by 10 years, uh, and that gives me 10,000 a year. Divide it by 52, that gives me $192 a week right? So if I just have raw savings to achieve $100,000, I need to save $192 a week starting from tomorrow and in 10 years' time, I'll wake up with $100,000 in the bank provided I don't spend it, All right? So that's just raw money. That's not including uh, any Returns on that investment or, or that money in the bank. Okay, so probably if we kept it in the bank, it won't be giving us much more than that hundred thousand, will it? But if we put it into maybe a managed fund or ETFs or property leveraged or, or individual stocks, then we we hopefully are going to get a better result than just the raw cash money savings. So first of all, achieving. That money goal is are we looking at a a million dollars by ten years so is it realistic is based on what are we setting for for an out um for an outcome and I'd love to have Henry right here what his money goal actually was so we could maybe do a do a calculation for it but um yeah, I think. Is it realistic? Do the numbers like I just did then from a cash flow perspective, how much do I have to save? And then indeed, what are my variables around that over the next 10 years? So am I going to start a family? Uh, Is my job going to increase in pay, which you would assume that it might over the journey, but my living costs might be extra? Am I going to buy my own home to live in over that journey? Uh, What investments uh, am I going to get my um, teeth into and what uh, returns can I expect as an average from those uh, from those investments and, and being realistic with the returns and not like the example of property, 20%, 25% in the last 12 months. Don't do your numbers on a 20% return year in, year out for the next 10 years for your money goal, Henry. So we, we probably hover it around a 5 to 7%. That's been the average on good property in the last 100 years and probably individual stocks the same. Um anything to add to that for you, Dev?
3: So I think uh, yeah, great question. And and I think you gotta write your plan down. Um and you gotta you gotta um you know review it, measure it and benchmark it. So, you know, having a written financial plan is really important and having having a investment plan is also very important. Um you know they sort of say past performance is not an indicator of future performance and that's just medical legal jargon basically but it's a pretty good start though isn't it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah that's right I mean you I mean basically you know when you when you do anything in life you know what you do is you review your past performance I mean if you look at elite uh, elite athletes um sports people and sports teams what do they do they review their opponents games they review their own games and say what can I do to improve on what I've already been doing so although it's not a great indicator or the best indicator of the future it is some indicator and then you can sort of benchmark that versus you know um What you want to be. So, you know, using John's example, if you want to get to $100,000 in 10 years' time, then you can either raw savings it or you can work out what the past performance of a particular index fund or particular property market has been over the last 10 or 15 years and say, okay, well, this is how much money that I need to invest over those 10 years' period of time to get to the $100,000 um, that I would need to. It's really important also never to compare yourself to other people. I think there's a fair bit of social media pressure um, where, you know, people post that, you know, they've reached seven-figure status in the last sort of five years or so at, at, at age 40 or something like that. So, you know, you, you need to make sure that, you know, you, you have realistic expectations and don't compare yourself to them. There are wealth calculators and net worth calculators out there, um, you know, the what's called the average wealth accumulator or something like that, which is basically age divided by 10 multiplied by annual income. And there's something called prodigious accumulator, which is age multiplied by annual income divided by 10. So, the different formulas that you can use depending on your own situation and and it depends also on your life stage, what John said, you know, when are you planning kids? Do you have kids? You know, do you have health issues? You know, does your partner work, etc. There's a lot of individualities there that you need to consider. Now, I generally have this thing called the five-year rule. So, what I normally do is I have this sort of five-year overarching plan in my head. And I kind of write it down. I keep it very, very simple. So, I'll probably say in in the next five years, you know, I want my net worth to increase by X amount of dollars. And basically, and then I'll sort of subcategorize that and say, well, how much of that is going to be in property? How much of that is going to be in super? How much of that is going to be in investments outside of super like ETFs? And I'll sort of do it like that. But remember, finance is very personal, Henry. Don't, you know, don't... um. Uh, you know, benchmark it against what you'll feel comfortable with. I think it's really important.
2: Yep, very good, very good. But, uh, yeah, look, um, Henry set something and and attack it with vigour and, and get a result but it's the habits that achieve the goal isn't it not necessarily the goal itself so get some good habits and, and go for it and own it and tell people and, and you'll get there I'm sure so uh, yeah that that's pretty much it Dev there's been some awesome questions today and a mixture of both that we can both um, tap into and, and give answers hopefully that's been insightful for everyone uh, tell us Dev what have we got coming up that the listeners can look forward to on My Millennial Money Medical.
3: Yeah, look, uh, I try and release episodes every week. Uh, we've got something called margin of safety. Now, what I tend to do, John, is I pick an investment concept. And margin of safety is an investment concept that's used in accounting and business and investments. And and I go through the uh, you know, definitions and how potentially you could be using that in your life from a personal finance perspective. And a lot of people would be surprised. I reckon they would be using it.
2: Awesome. Now, look forward to that. So uh, tune in to My Millennial Money Medical and all the other Uh, shows that we've got going on. My Millennial Property is, uh, what have we got going on? We've got a young gun coming on. So if you want some inspiration from a a kid that was on a modest wage and still is a kid, I think he's 28, uh, that has really had – um, a, a focus and drive to grow his portfolio, and living on a really lean life, um, and, and has a visited over a hundred countries. So it's an amazing wow. story. So tune into that, check that out, and as always, if you want to leave a review, please do. But everything will be in the show notes. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Dev. I've really enjoyed this one. Just uh, good to mix it up and uh, and talk some different topics, and also, yeah, be uh, be on the show with yourself.
3: Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to everyone that's asked all these wonderful questions. I think the more questions, the more we learn. And, uh, you know, this channel is all about education. You know, get empowered and get educated
2: and um, get entertained, of course. Absolutely. So until next time, keep well.